Hello and welcome to another episode of the Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine podcast. YJBM is a PubMed-indexed quarterly journal edited by Yale medical, graduate, and professional students and peer-reviewed by experts in the fields of biology and medicine. Each issue of the journal is devoted to a focus topic, and through a few episodes of this podcast, we'll take you through the past, present, and future of the issue's subject matter. This episode is part of our series devoted to the December 2018 issue on ecology and evolution. I'm your co-host, Amelia Hallworth, a second-year graduate student in microbiology. And I'm Kelsey Cassell, a first-year graduate student in epidemiology. In this issue, we're going to provide an overview of the kinds of research being done in the ecology and evolution issue. Obviously, ecology and evolution is a huge, are huge fields, and they impact every organism and its interactions with any other organism or its environment. This is a ridiculously vast topic. Today, we're going to try and focus on how ecology and evolution research tells us more about a single species, the monarch butterfly. Most of us are familiar with the monarch butterfly. It's bright orange and black, and it's usually the epitome of what a butterfly is. Some of you have may even been so lucky as to receive one of those monarch butterfly kits as a child, the ones where you receive a butterfly still in its chrysalis form and you eagerly wait for it to hatch only to sadly release it the next day. The monarch is also the epitome of insect migration. Monarchs begin their migration from the northern U.S. and southern Canada to central Mexico each fall with the help of a sun compass. Their sun compass uses the direction of the sun overhead to maintain a southern direction during flight, as well as their circadian clock to maintain time. Monarchs are sensitive to a variety of external stressors, such as diet. In their caterpillar form, they need to eat milkweed leaves as well as storms, predators, long migratory flights, and more recently, the threat of habitat loss, both in summer and winter homes. Um, But luckily, monarch butterflies have a variety of evolutionary strategies that help them deal with these pressures. For example, key evolutionary steps have allowed monarchs to evade predation by other insects and birds. For example, because caterpillars eat just milkweed, they're poisonous to many species uh, because they accumulate compounds called cardinalides, Uh, that are found in the milkweed. They also warn other species of their poisonous nature uh, because they're brightly colored. As caterpillars, they have horizontal stripes of white, yellow, and black, and then monarchs, as mentioned before, are bright orange and black. In addition to their ways of dealing with this predation, there are also a variety of evolutionary adaptations that help them on their long migration. For example, as their monarch butterflies are feeding on nectar, They store this energy as lipids, which can be used during their flight and also while they're overwintering in Mexico. Additionally, when they fly into the wind, they're able to use less of their stored energy and save more of it for wintertime. Efficient breathing is needed to help monarchs get oxygen to power their wings. Insects in general do not have lungs like we do, but instead they have tubes that carry oxygen into their bodies. So, uh, Kelsey, I'm not sure if you've heard, but... Uh, I've heard that insects are really small because they're limited in their size because of the uh, amount of oxygen that can diffuse through their body. What I hadn't heard was that many insects, including butterflies, use rhythmic compression of these tubes to move air throughout their bodies. So, for example, they might compress them in a pattern from their head further back to push oxygen in or the other way around to push carbon dioxide out. So one paper in YJBM's issue uh, is by Hotchgraf, Waters, and Socha, and they looked at the dynamics of this compression in the ground beetle, Platinus dissentus. 
uh, because really this isn't very well understood. Uh, and they used x-rays to measure the compression and to look at the direction. And actually what they found was that surprisingly, the compression mostly happened everywhere at once in a synchronized fashion rather than moving in one direction. And it's unclear what this means for respiration. So although we're starting to understand possibly some of the breathing of insects like the monarch butterfly, there's still a lot more that needs to be done. Additionally, the ability to navigate over these long distances is also critical for migration success. The monarch butterfly's ability to navigate has been an area of interest for many researchers. Like almost all organisms, monarch butterflies have a circadian clock that allows them to sense and respond to light. In order to study this, in 1997, researchers at the University of Kansas used a method of clock shifting where they delayed migratory monarchs by six hours and then measured directionality after takeoff. In one of my favorite sentences of this one-page study, the authors ran behind and beneath butterflies to estimate body orientations maintained for 15 seconds or more using handheld compasses. The clock-shifted group showed a clockwise shift in direction and did not maintain the southerly orientation of the control group. This indicated that the circadian clock and some compass was critical to their southern direction and orientation during migration. Researchers had known for some time that monarchs used sun compasses as well as part of their migration, but what they were unsure of until 2009 was where in the insect's body these sun compasses were located. Internal clocks in the brain controlled similar circadian rhythms in silk moss and drosophilia, but it had been assumed that these could be true for monarchs as well. The alternative theory was that the sun compasses were located in the antennae. In 2009, a study published in Science from researchers at University of Massachusetts compared monarchs with surgically removed antennae to those with their antennae intact. They tethered the monarchs and followed them for 26 days after release. The orientation of flight among the antennaless butterflies was random and covered the full 360 degrees of direction. The authors were also able to show that the clock gene expression did not change in the antennaless or control monarchs indicated that the effect of the antennae was not because it was required for proper functioning of a possible brain sun compass. The researchers also showed that painting the antennae black resulted in an almost exactly 180-degree shift in flight orientation. These results indicated to the researchers that antennae are necessary for proper time-compensated sun compass orientation in migratory monarch butterflies. So, Kelsey, you say when they painted the antenna black, this shifted the direction. What color are the antenna normally? Do you know? I do not, and I don't remember them saying it. Okay. They might possibly be black, and painting them black was just to cover all of the sensilla that are on the antennae. That's true. Yeah. It would also, like, prevent the uh, light from getting to them and stuff like that. Huh. That's very cool. I should look into that. (laughs) In this ecology and evolution issue of YGBM, Elgar and colleagues from the University of Melbourne and Beijing Forestry University described the various selection pressures for insect antennae morphology. One role of insect antennae is to measure chemical compounds in the air, but insects vary in the shape and design of antennae, both inter- and interspecially. The main question this review poses is, what are the pressures that select for the differences in antennae, and what role do these differences serve in olfactory sensing? This review covers both a natural and sexual selection of antennae morphology, how physics and modeling has been used to elucidate the intricacies of the antennae, and even delves into the micromorphology of antennae, as if they weren't small enough to begin with. Antennae optimize rather than maximize odorant receptor interactions because the morphology is under selection pressure for aerodynamic and resource constraints. There are many studies describing the morphology of antennae across and among species, but the authors point out that very few studies discuss how morphology influences the optimization of odorant detection. 
The general theory is that larger antennae will have more odorant receptor interactions because they can support more sensilla, the sensors. But this is not necessarily always true. This review goes into great depth on the examples found in nature that highlight this theory as well as those that contradict it. So all this research running around in fields chasing around butterflies tells us lots of interesting things about what's going on with the butterfly migration. But it's important to note that not all ecology and evolution research on monarchs occurs in a field. Mathematical models uh, run on a computer can simulate how the butterflies are interacting with each other, with other species, and with the environment. So one example of a model that's been used to look at monarch butterfly patterns is the density-dependent model. So in this model, it's assuming that the birth and death rates of a population are affected by the density of the population, based on the idea that crowding might lead to a reduction in births or an increase in deaths. So basically the idea is that as it gets more crowded, the butterflies are having more competition and this would hurt the population. And what they found is that in the overwintering sites in Mexico, there was actually a very strong effect for density dependence over individual years. So in this case, having uh, more crowding does hurt the population of butterflies. But you can also use these kinds of ideas uh, and this density dependent model to look at other reasons for this decline by controlling for the effect that's seen. So in this paper, even after they controlled for this negative density effect on the butterflies, they still saw a decrease in the population over the period. Uh, And what this means is that there have to be other reasons for the decline in addition to just the population density. So one example of something that might be contributing to this would be competition for resources with other species. An invasive species, the Japanese beetle, which also feeds on milkweed, might be one reason for this population decline. Another reason is human-related causes. For example, pesticide use, urbanization that leads to loss of habitat or climate change. It's hard to do experiments on a lot of these things. You can't really set aside two areas and say, we're going to build a city in just one spot. So a lot of the time you have to test predictions on these factors using models such as the one mentioned above. But one paper in YJBM's issue talked about ways that you can experimentally warm an area. Uh, And this review is by Sprites and others. And they point out that many of the methods that are commonly used to measure uh, environmental warming only warm the area during the day because they rely on the sun. And so therefore, this review looks at alternate methods that allow you to warm an area 24-7 and discusses why that this is so important. To wrap up, I'm going to discuss one of the first publications on butterfly antennae um, from 1877 published in the American Naturalist. It was by Mr. L. Truvillo, who was one of the first to investigate the role of insect, specifically butterfly antennae. He wrote the review as sort of a response to one of his colleagues who was hypothesizing the role of antennae, and he didn't entirely agree with what his colleague had found. He conducted three experiments, not totally unlike the experiments that we discussed earlier. The first was where he plucked the antennae off, and then he tossed the butterflies up in the air to see if they could still fly, and they did. So he recorded that of his, like, 10 or so butterflies, they still flew after plucking the antennae off. The second experiment was where he painted the eyes with India ink, and then he once again tossed them into the air in his house, presumably, or his lab, and then he saw that they could still fly. In the third and final experiment, he plucked the antennae and he painted the butterfly eyes with Indian ink, and he found that they could not no longer fly. So that they were bumping into things around his apartment, and he like noted which objects they were bumping into in his apartment as part of the science. Um, his final car in, his final quote in the article was. So, in my opinion, this sense being different from this sense, referring to whatever sense the antennae are able to detect. 
This sense, being different from the senses common to the human species, needs a new name so as to be distinguished from and not confused with the sense of smell. It is a kind of feeling or smelling of a great distance by some process now totally unknown. That is a very cool experiment. I feel a little bit bad for the butterflies, but I'm sure it was funny watching them flying around bumping into stuff. So in this episode, we've tried to give an idea of how these big ideas in ecology and evolution, such as evolutionary adaptations, methods of sensing the world, and how to model interactions of a species with other animals and humans, how these big ideas apply to one species. But many of these ideas that we discussed apply to many or all species. Today we highlighted some of the research from the ecology and evolution issue, but there are many more papers that we didn't get a chance to discuss in which these ideas are applied to other topics. So, for example, there's an interview about the evolutionary origin of the adaptive immune system. There is an improved mathematical model for mutualism, which occurs when two species benefit for each other. There's a review on microbiome evolution and public health paper on the host specificity of snail parasites. So this should give you an idea that even though we just talked about monarchs today, the fields of ecology and evolution are so much bigger than just monarch butterflies. If you're interested in any of the papers I just mentioned, please check out the issue for free by searching the Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine at pubmed.com. For more information on YJBM or her podcast, please visit medicine.yale.edu slash YJBM. There are many people behind this podcast that you never get a chance to hear. Thank you to the Yale School of Medicine for being a home for YGBM and the podcast. Thank you to the Yale Broadcast Center for help with recording, editing, and publishing our podcast. And thank you to the YJBM editorial board, especially our editors-in-chief, Helen Bellinson and Fatima Mirza, and the deputy editors for the Ecology and Evolution issue, Lisa McLean and Paris Yagubi. Finally, thanks to you for turning in this episode of the Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine podcast. We'd love to hear your feedback and questions, so feel free to tell us your thoughts by emailing us at yjbm at yale.edu. If you enjoyed our podcast, please share our podcast on SoundCloud or Apple Podcasts.